Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Andrea Penrose about murder at the Royal Botanic Gardens, the fifth in her Lord Rexford and Lady Charlotte Sloan series. It's something of a happy accident that I've encountered so many remarkable historical mysteries recently. I stumbled over this one through an online recommendation and was instantly hooked. The time period, Regency England, is one I grew up with as a die-hard Georgette Hare fan, but Andrea Penrose's Regency London couldn't be more different from Hare's, or Austin's, if you're a Jane Austen devotee. Most interesting, as we'll discuss, is Penrose's focus on the scientific developments of the time, from steam engines to primitive computers, and how those inventions drive her intricate but satisfying plots. Even more compelling are the complex and fascinating characters, especially the leads, the Earl of Rexford and Lady Charlotte Sloane, who began the series as reluctant co-investigators and are now planning their wedding. Until, of course, an unexpected corpse appears. Prologue. The floral fragrances, a symphony of subtle sweetness, swirled with the earthier scents of misdamp leaves and the nutrient-rich soil. The gentleman closed his eyes for a moment and drew in a deep breath. The essence of life. There was nothing more beautiful, Josiah Beckton mused, as he stood very still in the shadows and let the warm air caress his cheeks. Moonlight flickered through the soaring glass-paned walls of the magnificent conservatory, its silvery softness twining with the gold-hued glow of the lanterns hung among the exotic greenery. The faint sounds of a string quartet, was it Mozart or Haydn? floated out from the assembly room attached to the rambling structure, the lilting notes punctuated by discreet laughter and the crystalline click of champagne glasses. It was all so elegantly civilized, this international symposium of botany scholars and wealthy patrons of science, gathered at London's legendary Royal Botanic Gardens in order to share their knowledge for the good of mankind. And now, please join me in welcoming Andrea Penrose. Hi, Andrea. Thanks for agreeing to talk with me today. I'm so pleased to be here. Thanks for asking. 
Although we're going to focus on your Rexford and Sloan series today, you have a previous series that features Lady Ariana Hadley. Uh, I've read several of those books, and they fascinate me in part because there seem to be character overlaps between them and the Rexford and Sloan novels. Most notably, Basil Henning appears in both, but there are subtler links as well. Could you talk about the genesis and development of Lady Ariana? I would love to. Um, but first, as a bit of backstory, I thought it might be helpful if I explain why I love the Regency and setting my novels in that era. Um, for me, it's such a fabulously interesting time and place. It's a world, a swirl and silk, seduction, intrigue of the Napoleonic Wars. Radical new ideas were clashing with uh, conventional thinking of the past. People were questioning the fundamentals of society. As a result, they were fomenting changes in every aspect of life, sort of politics, art, music, science, social rules. The world was really turning upside down. Uh, you had romanticism taking hold with Beethoven composing emotional symphonies, Byron writing wildly romantic poetry, Turner dabbling in impressionistic watercolors, Mary Wollstonecraft writing the first feminist manifestos. And then technology was disrupting everyday life as the Industrial Revolution began to crank into high gear. Interest in science was exploding as people were looking around at the world and wanting to understand how it worked. Geology, the workings of the heavens, the mysteries of the sea. It's, it's In so many ways, it's the birth of the modern world. And for me, its challenges and its characters, its conflicts, have such relevance to our own times. Hey, I mean, we all find change is frightening. Um, so um, I really, I like writing about people who are both strong and vulnerable. Um, we all have strengths and weaknesses and how we learn to balance those conflicting elements is to me sort of an integral part of the human experience. And an author can of course play with these tensions in any era, but for me, the Regency presents a particularly interesting time in which to do it. Um, so, you know, as for Lady Ariana, um, you know, it's interesting. It came about, um, I was brainstorming ideas for a mystery series um, with my agent. Um, and uh, I wanted to move into mysteries. I felt a series of link books gave more opportunity to develop characters in a more nuanced and complex way than a single book about a hero and heroine where the love story is the main focus of the plot. Um, and I had stumbled across some fascinating facts about the history of chocolate, uh, which is a whole topic for another podcast. And um, my, my agent thought, um, what about a heroine with an expertise in chocolate? So I began pondering. Um, I think what she had in mind was a light, cozy series with a woman as a proprietor of a chocolate shop and through her customers became involved in solving mysteries. So I think she didn't quite expect the concept I came up for, uh, Lady Ariana, um, but she liked it. Um, so... Uh, Lady Ariana is the daughter of a disgraced earl who's forced to flee to the West Indies to escape prosecution in England for a financial fraud. He's been framed to take the full blame by his co-conspirators. She's grown up in poverty and then 
when her father is murdered when she's fairly young, she has reason to suspect that his co-conspirators wanted to silence him. So she decides to come back to London and seek revenge and clear his name. Um, disguised uh, as a man, she gets a job cooking in, a, in an aristocratic household, which allows her entree into the world of the beau monde. But when the Prince Regent falls ill after eating one of her chocolate desserts, the government gets involved, sends a former military officer to investigate. Um, they have a very heated confrontation, but um, they quickly discover that there is some dark conspiracy afoot and that perhaps both of them are being used as pawns. Um, and to save herself from arrest, Ariana offers to serve as bait to get to the root of what's going on. And so the hunt is on. Uh, the the Lady Ariana books focus more on the political intrigue of the era, which is fascinating because of the Napoleonic Wars and the budding of heads with America. Um, but in Rexford and Sloan, it takes sort of a different tact. Yes, let's talk about that. Uh, what gave rise then to the Rexford and Sloan novels? Because you're still publishing Lady Ariana, right? Or republishing? I am. I I am. I actually am um, continuing them as self-pub. The first three were done um, at Putnam Penguin, and then they cut down on their line. And I enjoyed writing them so much that I decided to um, continue writing and self-publish the uh, the the uh, the next titles and I, I am I the new one will be out next spring. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> I, I still have three <laughs> or four of those to go through. I've I've read all of the Rexford and Sloans, but it's good to know that they're um, you know, there's a steady diet, so to speak, especially with there, the chocolate. There, there will be there will be coming. <laughs> so uh, tell us about Rexford and Sloan. Yeah, well, you know, as I mentioned when I was talking about the Regency I've become fascinated in technology and how it was frightening and disrupting society in Regency times. It seemed like such an interesting parallel to our own times that I just thought it would be a really compelling theme to use, which actually is very amusing since I haven't taken a science uh, course since, you know, ninth grade biology. (laughs) So it's it's odd that I became entranced, but it it really... um, I, I just think it it how people confront change and fear um, it, it, it makes for a wonderful um, uh, time to set a mystery. No, I agree. I think it works very well. And we will talk about some of the specific sciences um, that are covered later on. But let's talk first about the characters, starting with the Earl of Rexford, who is the first person we meet after the prologue where the murder is. Right, right. Well... Rexford is a, a rich, bored, irascible aristocrat, but he's a brilliant man of science and possesses the ability to look at problems with a coldly dispassionate logic. Now, he takes great pride in being a rational man, you know, above the messiness of emotions. He just thinks absolutely steel trap logic. And then he meets Charlotte, you know. So I've had um, a lot of fun. Um, confronting him with his own preconceptions about an orderly life and having him slowly discover other facets of his character. Um, now, what what is really interesting, too, is much is made about the constraints on women 
in the in the Regency, the rules, the strictures. But what I'm basing Rexford on, it's because the real truth is many aristocratic men felt just as constrained as women did by the strictures of society. Um, if you were an aristocrat, you you couldn't work for a living. Um, so they really had difficulty exercising their talents if they were bright and, and inquisitive. Um, he'd be shunned for society for soiling his hands in trade. Um, it's one of the reasons why so many bright and inquisitive men who could afford it became amateur men of science. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I use I avoid using the word scientist as it wasn't invented until 1833, which is the tail end of the Regency. But it's um, they these these men um, people like. Charles Babbage, who invented the first computer, and Henry Cavendish, who discovered hydrogen, captured that spirit of intellectual curiosity. It was the only way for men to challenge their minds. The alternative was drinking, gambling, and wenching their way to an early death, which, of course, many of them did. I think that's a very good point. It's true typically throughout history. I mean, men have traditionally wielded more power. But, you know, the men that I write about, for example, have to be warriors because of their class. They, they don't have a choice. If they happen to be artistic or they happen to be something else, tough luck. It, it's, it, it's so fascinating. In the Regency, if you were in a, in a, born to the aristocracy um, and you were a second son, the first son, of course, inherits all the lands. And so he, he can actually run an estate if, it, if it's a large, he can... He, he has those challenges. But if you're a younger son, you can join the army, you can be a diplomat, or you can go into the church. And um, a lot of the very bright men became clerics, you know, or country curates or reverends, because they had a lot of free time to think and to putter and to um, explore the things that interested them, you know, like sci different sciences, or they became historians, they would write, they were able to write, you know, novels or, or uh, uh, history books. So it, it, they, it really was um, a very constricted life. Um, it, it seems like it's golden, but it, uh, there were real, real challenges. When we first meet uh, Rexford, his wrath, and you mentioned he is irascible, is directed at a satirist known as A.J. Quill. <laughs> and we soon discover in that first novel, so it's not really a spoiler, that A.J. Quill is the pen name of Charlotte Sloan, whom you just mentioned. Talk about Charlotte. She is such a sweet character. <laughs> well, Charlotte has um, taken up the pen of her late husband. Um, they are they were struggling. Um, he was a, a painter, uh, an artist. So um, and she finds she's even better at social commentary than he was. Um, but uh, the nom de plume keeps her real identity a secret because, of course, a woman would never be allowed to criticize the leaders of society. And it also allowed her to earn money to live on her own terms. Now, in the Regency, the real-life satirical artists um, were they're, they're the sharp-eyed, sharp-tongued social commentators. They're the equivalent of Trevor Noah, Jimmy Kimmel, Saturday Night Live. And in real life, the individual artists became very well known and were were 
celebrities in their own right. They created these wonderfully large, beautifully detailed colored prints, which were sold every morning at the local print shops. But the general public would gather around the display windows to look at them um, like we look at the, the morning newspaper to see what was really going on in society because the 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 satirists all had their um, web of um, informants, you know, uh, uh, servants and um, people they could get in, inside information from. And then they would poke fun at the high and mighty and lambast um, political leaders skewering their foibles and making public their scandals. Um, so Charlotte... Um, is very clever and very insightful and is very good at doing this. But her network for learning secrets also proves invaluable when she's drawn into solving a crime. Yes, uh, and one of the ways she's drawn into solving the crime uh, is because she, one of the things that differentiates her quite a bit from Lady Ariana is that she's living with these two urchins who, at least at the beginning, have just kind of taken up residence in their foyer, which she is allowing them to do. Um, and it's such a nice element of the story, uh, Raven and Hawk. So tell us a bit about them. Well, you know, I wanted to create a world for my characters that was a little more true to actual history and not just show the fairy tale world of glittering ballrooms and fancy mansions and elegant silks and satins. Life was really challenging for, for most of the people of that era. And uh, Charlotte and the boys are really kindred spirits. They're orphans who who've managed to survive in the slums, which means they're really clever and smart and, and resilient. Um, and so is Charlotte. So they, they really... That first draws them together. They're, they're, all three of them are fiercely independent, and they're a little wary of letting others get too close because they've learned they have to protect themselves. Um, so I wanted, I, by bringing them together, I also wanted to show that in hard times, love and family, because they do forge their own eccentric little family, are powerful forces against darkness. I guess, you know, at heart, I'm a romantic, and I believe that good will triumph over evil. There are quite a few important secondary characters in this series, um, and some of them are present from the very beginning. Uh, Rexford's friend, Kit Sheffield, Tyler, who is Rexford's valet, um, Basil Hemming, whom I mentioned before. Um, others work their way in over time, such as Tyler's cousin, McClellan, Charlotte's great aunt, Allison, do you have a favorite or two? And, and if so, why? Which Why did you pick that person? That's not fair. You know, all, the, <laughs> all the secondary characters have a special place, you know, in my heart. But I do have to say, Sheffield was particularly fun. I fully intended him in the first book just to be a charming fribble, you know, kind of a comic foil for Rexford's seriousness. He would lighten moments or, you know, add some humor to the scenes. Um, but lo and behold, he totally surprised me. He, he refused to play the fool. Now, he shows some hints of his depth in the first book, but there's a scene in the second where he really put his foot down and told me in no uncertain terms that he was far smarter 
and had far more character than I first imagined. So it's been really fun to develop him. And um, one of the elements I've played with is that um, in when you first meet him, he's really bad at gambling. I mean, Rexford tears his hair out. Kid, you, how can you be this bad? You've got to be smarter. And how he gets better at it um, has been great fun to uh, to do. I won't give any spoilers. No, don't give spoilers. But I do love how characters do that. I mean, a lot of my best characters started off as people I was, you know, I thought I was going to blame a crime on them. And then they were gonna go. it, it, exactly. It, it, isn't it funny how they really do take, I mean, people think you're crazy when you, um, when you say that to them. What do you mean they, they have a mind of their own? You're making them up. You know, but it is, it's amazing. <laughs> right. Even the dialogue and everything. I mean, so the stuff that comes out of some of my characters' mouths, I'm like, where'd you get that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I have it. I, there are times when I push back, you know, my chair from writing for the day and say, I didn't know they were going to do that. I had no idea. No, that's why you have to talk direction. to other writers because they're not quite so ready to call <laughs> That is so true. That the is professionals, so true. right? You, yeah, yeah. When you, you know, when you get with a group of authors, you, you, you do say, "Oh, at last, somebody understands what I'm talking about." They think, you know, other friends just sort of say, "Well, you just sit down, and the book just sort of happens, you know, comes out. It's really easy, isn't it? Especially once you've done one, and you want to say, "Oh my God, you have no idea." Well, not just that, but the only time I ever had writer's block, serious writer's block, was when I was trying to force a character to do something she just didn't want to do. I mean, I know that sounds completely nuts, but as soon as I said no, no, she would not do that. She just would not do that. And it all opened up again. I mean, it's it's a real, I don't know where it comes from, the subconscious somewhere, I guess, but it is a real phenomenon. It is absolutely. You just you're you're trying to push a scene, and you're going. This just isn't working. What is wrong with it? And you're right. Sometimes you just say because they wouldn't do that. They just you know he wouldn't do that. She wouldn't do that. And um, it's it's really fascinating. It is fascinating. So if tell, actually you don't have to pick just one. And Tyler is a favorite of mine. So <laughs> tell tell us a little bit about Tyler before we move on. To- well. I, I, Tyler is he he's he's one of the few people who can um who's not intimidated by the earl <laughs> lord rexford and he he can um he he enjoys bantering they both enjoy bantering even though rexford is is very snarky at times they but they have a very um a, a good relationship and he 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 shows his mettle in in um, a number of the mysteries too. What I try, I the, the secondary characters all have their strengths and they do contribute um, some more. You know, depending on which book, on on being um, very involved in helping to find the key clues that are going to solve um, the mystery. Um, and um you know Allison has been fun too because i'm um you don't see elderly characters in novels that that are allowed to really be sensible i find you know a lot of times they're used sort of as daughterial um 
um, just elements, sometimes humorous. And I just, I think um, I have fun showing wisdom and experience um, is, is really helpful. And she, she plays a role in really um, counseling Charlotte sometimes. And she's also developing, finding out that she really enjoys this sleuthing stuff, too. <laughs> In fact, she worries um, Charlotte and, and uh, Rexford a little bit. She's getting a little too enthusiastic about um, involving herself in danger. So she's, she's fun. She's a great character. I really like her, too. And she leads right into my next point, which is that there are a lot of very uh, intelligent, strong, motivated women, which is neat in itself. I like that. But also, I like the way that many of the men in your books, even men who turn out to be villains, um, are able to cope with these uh, women and, and be supportive of them. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. It's It's, as I was saying, the Regency... You have this the, the fairy tale aspect, the ballroom, and all everything was manners and very constricted. But in in real life, I I remember seeing um, an exhibit at the um, of of portraits from the National uh, Portrait Gallery in London. Um, it was called Romantics and Revolutionaries, and it it um, featured a selection of Regency portraits. And I was just riveted by the women that were shown and their stories. They were artists, poets, explorers, chemists, mathematicians. But what they all had in common was the courage to defy convention and pursue their passions. And that was a hallmark of uh, more so than you think in the Regency. There were women who were really pressing um, the traditional role of, of women. Not a lot of them, I mean, but but enough that um, they really, it's, I feel I can be true to life writing these strong women who, who are taking, taking um, chances and doing, pushing the envelope a bit. And, and I think there, there were men in real life who supported them and, and, and admired their intellect. Um, So again, it's, I'm really trying to stay true to what did happen back then, um, but put my own twist on it. And one of the things, or one of the areas where these women are involved is in the sciences. So um, as we mentioned, because it's a mystery series, we don't want to give away the stories to the individual books. Um, I would say it's probably a good idea for readers to read them in order because one of the things that happens is that the Rexford-Sloan relationship develops over time. So if you start at the end, then they're already in a place and you didn't get to see them get there. Um, and the fun is watching them make the changes. But the uh, So let's talk a little bit about the science. We have um, alchemy, slash chemistry uh, in the first one. We have steam power in the second one, electricity in the third one, uh, including the sort of Frankenstein version of electricity being used to stimulate life. Um, and I was so proud of myself because I figured that, I, not the whole thing out, but I figured out that that was what the electricity was doing there about halfway through. That was the first time in reading your books that I actually got ahead of you just a teensiest bit. 
Um, and then murder at Queen's Landing does mathematics and computing and even sort of early calculating, which, of course, was a Regency thing with Ada Lovelace and people like that. But um, how do you pick these areas and then decide, how do you decide how to turn them into uh, a criminal you know, mystery series? Well, it, it, you know, they, they sort of, uh, they're, they're so interesting in their own right. It's, it's kind of, um, uh, you know, I do a lot of deep reading if I, if I decide, you know, chemistry, that's, that's interesting. Or I knew alchemy um, was um, a lot of the early scientists before the Regency, chemist, modern chemistry sort of developed out of alchemy and and how they began to sort of say this is a little um, probably off off the rails, but this is this is reasonable. Um, and I, in doing some reading, I hit on um, it, it, formulas for explosives and gunpowder, and um, you began to realize the practical applications of chemistry in the Regency had had repercussions. The, 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 you know, the, the the army was doing research, chemical research. They they were um, um, it, it, so there were there were a lot of things. Um, I think I got interested because it's so there are just a lot of practical for all of the the sciences that I use there they it had a real it's not just sort of um, uh, abstract but there were there were ways they were trying to use it um, to affect everyday life whether it be war or the or the industrial revolution with the steam power um, so I just I, I when I sort of look at what are some of the major trends in science, it's sort of easy to pick um, a, a, a MacGuffin, in a sense, for, for a mystery. Um, you know, the first one is the chemistry. The steam power is easy um, because steam engines, again, engineering was happening, um, improvements for making more powerful machines. And that's when I started reading about patent wars like we have today they did in the regency too if someone an inventor patented um a, an improvement to an engine he could make a, a lot of money off of that just like our high-tech entrepreneurs do today so again they're just they're wonderful um synergies between um what was going on then and what is going on now and what can you reveal about murder at the Royal Botanic Gardens? Um, that peaceful scene I read in the introduction soon gives way to serious trouble. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Who would have thought that a symposium of botanical scholars would result in murder and mayhem? <laughs> you know? but, 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 but like today, you know, having a patent on a life-saving medicine would be worth a fortune. And greed in any era can lead to skulldudgery. <laughs> so um, that's what happens when they stumble across a body in the wonderful um, um, Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the, the corpse? Yes. <laughs> well, it's, you know, um, why do Rexford and Sloan, you know, and, and Charlotte get involved? It's, well, Rexford's valet, 
Tyler is old friends with one of the visiting scholars. And the scholar suspects that his colleague, who is about to announce a momentous discovery at the symposium, um, he suspects that he's been murdered. Um, He's the one they find dead and he did have a bad heart, but they notice, um, the scholar notices some white powder around his mouth. So he, uh, he suspects that he's been murdered and that his formula and specimen plant for a new medicine have been stolen because it's nowhere to be found. Now, Charlotte and Rexford take friendships very seriously. So they agree when Tyler asks them to help, um, he, they reluctantly agree. And then when they begin to uncover clues that point to a larger, darker conspiracy, their own sense of justice compels them to bring the miscreants to justice. We know from the book uh, that Rexford and Charlotte are planning their wedding, so that's not a spoiler in itself. I'm not going to ask you how they get there from him raging at her as A.J. Quill at the beginning of book one. But I would like you to talk a little bit about how they are well-matched. I mean, they really are perfectly suited to each other, even though they're quite different. So what is it that draws them to each other? It's a definite friends-to-lovers trope. Um, I deliberately made them people who are very guarded with their emotions and don't easily let others in. So to me, building trust and mutual respect over time is is really interesting, and I think it's more true to real life. Um, the two of them are always going to butt heads, but in different ways as the relationship changes. And again, I think that's real life. Exploring how they grow and change with each other sort of gives me another layer um, of the series um, and, and the emotions that go on. Um, one of the things I, I do find fun to play with is the matching of reason and intuition. Um, they're both very, very careful observers, but they see things in different ways. And um, at first, they they sort of butt heads on that, and they do come to respect each other, um, how, how they see things, how they process things, and um, they, they learn from each other, and they each begin, you know, Rexford begins to trust his intuition a little more, and Charlotte understands logic, too, about being really analyzing things a little carefully. So it's really fun to work with them as, as, um, as I said, they, be, they, they learn a real respect and trust um, together. What would you like people to take away from their Rexford and Sloan novels? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I'm going to sort of answer that by going um, to my own childhood reading experiences. I mean, I found books magical, the power of storytelling that sort of alchemy of words on paper that take you to wondrous places, introduce you to wondrous friends. It was transformational. And, and I discovered so many, you know, friends, Winnie the Pooh, Wind of the Willows, Charlotte's Web, what, 
what they all had in common was they sparked my imagination, encouraged a sense of curiosity, wonder, and adventure. I was one of those girls who wasn't very interested in girly things. And my storybook friends, you know, be they a bear, a badger, a mole, a knight, or other children, sort of helped me dare to think outside the box. And, you know, these books of quests and of courage in the face of fear, the power of friendship, the power of love, these are, they were things that really shaped who I am as a writer. Um, and it stuck with me. And so what do I want? I want readers to have fun being transported to my storybook world for a few hours. But I hope they also come away with um, that same elemental message that resonated with me from my childhood reading, that in the face of personal problems or, or misfortunes, we actually all have more courage and strength and resilience and wisdom than we think we have. You know, so you know, if I manage to do that, I'm happy. And I hope my readers are too. And you've already promised us more Lady Ariana mysteries, which makes me very happy. Are we going to get another Rexford and Sloan as well? We are indeed. I, the book six is already turned into my editor and I've actually um, signed to do um, it, at least three more. So there, um, there will be more Rexford and Sloan. Excellent. Uh, so thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Andrea. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Andrea Penrose about murder at the Royal Botanic Gardens and its predecessors. Find out more about her at andreapenrose.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Network. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.